Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nina Pantic, joined as always by Irina Falcone. Hey guys, how's it going? Our special guest today is the one and only Leslie Allen. Leslie, welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with you guys. For those who don't know, Leslie was an amazing tennis player, career high number 17, as well as a doubles number 10. And we're going to talk to her about her career, but also what she's been up to since stopping playing competitive tennis, because it's a lot to get into. Let's begin with how has your quarantine shutdown period been during this coronavirus pandemic? What have you been up to? Well, it's a good thing that I like myself because I've spent a lot of time alone, uh, like everybody else. And uh, I'm in New Jersey, so very close to the epicenter of New York, where things were just out of control a few months ago or a few weeks ago. Uh, So one of the things that I decided that I would do once I heard that it could be helpful was to sew fabric masks. So I just went to my sewing area, dug out all the fabric that I had because I work in real estate as well. So usually for my client, I will sew them a handmade apron and I just had all that fabric and turned it into masks and donated it to the hospitals and they they accepted it. They sent us, I did it with another tennis player, Kyle Copeland Muse. And so we would get them picked up and then they would send us pictures of them at the hospital with the signs. I mean, with the masks, with signs that would say stay home or stay safe or be well. So it it was a little bit, it was a lot rewarding. So what else have you been focusing on during this pandemic? Tell us a little bit more. Well, one of the other things that I did uh, I spent the last few years working with some tennis athletes uh, that were on an NJTL excellence uh, team, and they are, were now heading off to college. And I wasn't quite sure that they knew all of the things they would be facing as a student athlete. So I did a virtual training with them, and they were from all across the country. It was about a dozen of them, and they had different challenges and things to to figure out or interview uh, current athletes what's it like so it was really eye-opening for them rewarding for me because my friends they call me the professor because there's two things that I do I either get up in the morning and I profess I'm going to do this I'm going to do this I'm going to do that I'm going to do that and usually I'm spinning like a top and I don't do any of it so so they can hear me in my cadence oh you're professing now they just said we don't even listen to you because we know we know you're not going to do but maybe one thing on the list But the other thing that I do as a professor is I love to teach and you even experience some of that. I just, I just love. So it was rewarding to work with the athletes and some of my individual clients virtually um, to do win for life training. So how do you guys know each other? You mentioned, you know, Irina from, from working together. What have you guys been up to together, I guess, in the past couple of years? Um, Well, I, well, the first time, 
Well, I obviously I followed her career and since she was from New York and lived not far from where I lived in New York, we were both in Washington Heights. Arena, would you say you were Washington Heights too? I typically say Washington Heights, but I'm more in, in wood in like I thought, 7th I thought, Street. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's why I asked because I know there's a difference. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, we were we were uh New Yorkers, kindred um areas. And so I was uh, coming down to do some win for life training with the boys and the women or the young men and the women, um, just to help them be ready for what they might face on the tour in terms of um, media training. How do you do interview techniques? How do you pivot and not answer a difficult question? How do you get your point across? And we bonded right away because we both loved HGTV and we still do. So so that was, I don't know, 2015. And then I guess the last time I saw her was in November, I was doing Win for Life training at the Sloan Stevens Invitational Camp. And Arena was there as one of the guest coaches and speakers. So we just, and we've just kept up over time with the magic of text. So do, do companies like the WTA and USDA then hire you and Win for Life to come and teach pe- people and train them? How'd they need to. <laughs> they do. I have done some, you know, I'm always involved with Billie Jean and the Power Hour, and um, I haven't done as much with the USTA, but perhaps I will. You never know. Um, so, you know, it's it's my passion. So I'm, I'm not going to chase people to to take the opportunity to to get better and to have um, to improve your your ability. I think when we feel more confident about ourselves, especially as as young women. Um, you just do better. You play better on the court. You're not worried about some things because you know, oh, I'm going to ace that interview. I'm not worried. I know how to speak at this party. I'm not worried. And that's just one less thing you can check off your list. So, you know, I I believe it, it, it helps you. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest Leslie Allen. She's telling us how Althea Gibson influenced her career. Keep listening. You go for so many years, like, you know, really honing your tennis skills. And I mean, you were a phenomenal player. Then I want to know how did the transition happen? Like you go from player and then you're with Win for Life. You're a real estate uh, you're a realtor. So how did that all come about? I mean, clearly it was just not a direct path. No, I mean, there, there's never a direct path. I think what was really helpful for me is when I showed up on the tour, Billie Jean was still in the locker room. And this is before everybody wore headphones. So you were forced to have to talk to people because, and you also, it wasn't a time where you made enough money where you would travel with a coterie, which was like a little bubble that you would be in and not have to interact. So we were forced to practice with one another, come down in the morning, have breakfast with one another, talk to one another. And Billy told me there were four things as a professional athlete that I had to do. One was to work on my game so I could put the best women's tennis product out there because it was still in the building phases. Two, to um, interact with the fans 
because they're the ones that are the butts in the seat cheering for you. Interact with the media. So, you know, none of this, no, 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 no. You know, because Billy would tell stories, they would have to chase the media to try and um, cover them and, and also work with the sponsor. So with that tutelage, I always did those four things throughout my entire career and established relationships based on that. And the first things that I did once I stopped playing was to be on the, the event management, the event promotion side with the tour sponsor. So um, I didn't know all of the, let's say, corporate speak, but I had a great mentor in Edie McGoldrick and Jean Washington. And um, so I would just take copious notes in the meeting. But what I did know, if a corporate person was planning a particular promotion at an event or an activity, I was able to say, no, no, you can't do that because it's always windy there. So all your stuff's going to blow away or no, no, you're not going to get a player to, to, to come here and go there and go there. That's not going to happen or suggest this would be a good way that you could showcase your sponsorship or your develop a relationship with a player or, or, or something like that. So um, it was a transition, but I, I have to say, I can remember the first time that I walked an athlete off the court. Um, and so, and because doing the media was part of what I should was responsible for. And you know how, when you play and you hear the applause, you can also feel the applause as you're leaving the stadium. So as I was walking this athlete off, off the, the crowd erupted, you know, to, to an appreciation. And I was like, wow, that's not for me, you know? So it was just a mind shift that you had to make it. it it's not for me. Um, but in terms of dealing with the athletes and dealing with the media, the athletes were easy because, you know, as tennis players, we are excellent as, at coming up with excuses. Right. On why we can't do something. I can't do this. I have to do this. I can't do that. I have to do that. And so there were four event managers with the craft tour. And if I had been, if I was assigned to a particular player, because we would usually split them and there was usually two people at a particular event or sometimes one event manager, if they got me, they knew they, there was nothing they're going to say that as a reason why they couldn't do an interview, they'd be like, okay. <laughs> This, you know, I got, and I was like, really? That's all you got? No, you're going to do this. So, so they would, that was just the talk in the locker room. Oh, Leslie's here. Forget it. You're going to just go do it. Just, just do it, get it done and you can get on with it. So, I mean, that was a positive re reputation because I wasn't bullying anybody, but basically I was like, okay, come with it. What you got? What you got? Cause you know, it, this is your responsibility and, and they would do it. We had a good rapport. What was it like though, being part of the tour in those days? Cause you were playing in the late 1970s early 1980s what was that how different was it back then it's not that long ago but long ago enough that tennis well, women's tennis was it, very different and, and well you know it was a really interesting time because the tour was shifting from country clubs to big arenas so we would play in detroit in cobo hall we would play at the los angeles forum this is pre-staples center we would play in the boston garden um so for tennis to be on that big stage was making a, a real statement. And um, there were usually like one or two players from a particular country. So you were forced to interact with, you know, you played board games in the locker room. Um, you know, there was not the internet. It wasn't the facts really. So you were forced to, to figure stuff out on your own. 
because you were you were isolated, but it was it was supportive. So there is one thing that this is going to be a kind of left field kind of question. Go um, for it. You know how people are constantly comparing LeBron to Michael and, you know, different eras, and I'm not a big fan of it. I, mm-hmm. I despise it. It's just, you know, different games, different times, different eras. Right, right. Did you like playing in your era or would you have rather have played in today's era? Um, what I really would have liked to have done was to have um, played volleyball and been an outside hitter. So somebody would toss the ball up to me and all my job was doing was to smack it down somebody's face. That's, that's really what I, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna do something, that's what I would have liked. To so do. you wouldn't even be playing tennis then? No, 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 no. I'd be an outside hitter all day long. Just, all right, set it up and I can do what? I can smack it. Okay, let's go. It's like hitting a short overhead at the net all day long. Wait, did you not choose tennis then when you were young on your own? Because I feel like you had a different path to how you got into it. You weren't a big fan as a kid, right? Oh, no. Well, see, my mother played ATA tournaments and ATA tennis, which was the African-American uh, counterpart to the U.S. LTA at the time. So I grew up every weekend of the summer. My mother taught school so she could have the summers off so she could play tennis. So she played competitive tournaments, ATA tournaments, all summer long. Every weekend we would go. And she would play all day long. I was miserable. I didn't want to be there. I would be at the playground. And um, then she, then the ATA had a little circuit, you know, Philadelphia tournament, a DC tournament. And you stayed at people's houses when they came. We lived in DC at the time. They would come to my house. But there were some juniors that played tennis at that time. But I was not one. So I played, a, but I took lessons. You know, she got me out there. I played when I was 11. She sent me down to um, Althea's mentor, Dr. Johnson, to his his house, his tennis camp for summer. Um, I hated it. <laughs> um, I didn't play, hit a ball between 11 and 14. And that's when um, I started playing again. And that's when I met your former hitting partner in Pen Pal. You know, so I didn't play any junior tennis except for the odd ATA tournament here and there. Um, but when I heard about title nine, that was game changer. Cause I was like, wait, I could go to school and play on a college team. And Billy was just starting also world team tennis and, um, and the women's tour. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't get all that playing for the trophy, but playing for a college or paying, playing for a check. Now that's interesting. So literally, I dug my same tennis racket out of the closet that I had when I was 11 with that, you know, the, the kind of um, nylon strings they used to have that were almost like rope and they had like either a little green spiral around it. Anyway, same racket, you know, and started playing because it was the tennis boom. It was in fashion. And I was like, I know how to do that. I love wow. that you mentioned that fact that we have a mutual coach, uh, a gentleman named Walter. It sounds like he actually deeply influenced your career in a way, at least when you were young. What would you be? Would players like today be surprised at how there was an ATA and a US LTA and how separate they kept different players? Because I mean, I I think that comes as a shock to someone who might be young and never even knew that was a thing. I think it's probably a shock to white players and to African-American players because there was a time where if you were going to play, you played in the, AT, the American Tennis Association, right? But then when things were integrated, 
more African-American players played in USLTA or USTA events. Um, a lot of times with issues, but nonetheless, they weren't absolutely kept out. But it's, there's nothing like going to an ATA tournament because it's like going to a family reunion because for me, uh, people had known me all my life. So when I went back and, and played it, even though even when I was in college, um, you know, they remember when I was the one up at the playground, not interested in playing. And my mother was the one who was the tennis player. So it's, um, I guess, for a person of color, the majority of the time that you play tennis, you are in the minority, right? When you, when you walk into the anywhere. And so with the American Tennis Association and you go and play that tournament or that national championship, you are in the majority. So it feels different. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, we have special guest today, Leslie Allen, talking to us about what it was like to play in the 1970s and 80s. Keep listening. So what inspired you is, is I'm assuming a lot of things, inspired you to write the undefeated article where you talked about how the USTA's t statement was actually very tone deaf. Um, their statement inspired me. I was, I was sitting, I was actually at a stand-up desk. I was standing at the desk and I saw the email come in. And um, so I opened it and, you know, it was early in the day. And so I didn't, I, I didn't want to be distracted by it. So I, I'm like, okay, well, let me see what they say. And it said, you know, a statement on the times of that were going on, the racial strife. So I opened it and I read the first sentence, you know, tennis is full of respect, you know, and okay, yeah, it is. Tennis is a great, uh, I don't know, whatever, great, is a great sport that everybody can play, race, gender, whatever. Yeah, that's true. And then, but the words that the USTA has had a long history of equality and opportunity or whatever it was, that just set me off. I mean, it just, I'm like, my thought was, who are they writing this for? Because any person of color has had some negative experience in tennis and possibly with the USTA. And, you know, I guess if you went down to the courthouse somewhere, wherever the courthouse is, there'd probably be a long list of suits that had been filed against the USTA for discrimination. But I really wasn't even thinking that. I was thinking, this is such a great opportunity because it was kind of a combination of the George Floyd situation and the fact that there are um, the, the protesters are of all ages and of all races and many, many, many more races, more white people than ever before in any of the past shootings that have happened, unfortunately, way too often. So in terms of the protests, that really felt different. and when I looked at them saying, we've had a long history of equality, I'm thinking, wow, no, you haven't. 50% of your time, you were segregationists. And if it hadn't been for a white woman stepping up, Alice Marble writing a scathing letter, which basically shamed you into um, letting, allowing Althea to play. Because before they would say things like, 
well, she doesn't have uh, the results. Well, of course she doesn't have the results because she, you won't let her into the tournament. Well, she should wait to get invited. Well, you're never going to invite her. So it was like that kind of a circle. And, and the ATA had been asking for years and years. I mean, I wasn't around then, but for her to be allowed to play because she'd, she'd won the ATA national championship for 10 years, let her play. So when, so I just felt like, here's a great story. Here's another example. When white people step up, they can help the cause. And so white people now are stepping up in protest to, against racism, which is helping the cause. So when you just kind of say, start with, lead with, we've had a long history of equality. No, you haven't. And, um, you know, we hope we all get along and learn and listen. Really? That's as strong as you can get versus, you know, somebody like um, Ben and Jerry, they say, just stop being blatantly racist. Stop being racist, you know, or stop. You know, I think theirs was like, uh, let's, white supremacy has to stop, you know, so they, they went way out there. So that, that was, and I'm telling you, so I, I read it, I got angry and I had a lot of work to do that day. I had to leave my house and I just said, okay, I'm going to walk until I'm not mad anymore. So I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. And I look and it was like two miles walking and walking. So I ended up walking four miles um, to be able to come back and just be mad. But I was like, and I don't usually get that that uh, disturbed, but I, I just, I lamented the fact that our sport couldn't do better. Um, so, and that there were gonna be people that were gonna pat them on the back and say, wow, that's fabulous. You really spoke up because we wouldn't have expected the USTA to speak up, so. Did you get a lot of good feedback after you wrote that article? It depended, uh, my friends that knew me, you know, either they had heard some of the stories or they knew and then people that I didn't know, if they were a person of color, they often said, thank you for sharing your story, or they related things that had happened to them that were very similar or exactly what I wrote in the piece. Because when I wrote it, all of those things happened to me, um, except when I was talking about what other juniors, what other black juniors had heard when they played. Um, but I, I felt as though I was the voice for those, so all of us that have experienced that kind of um, bias, racism, whatever you want to call it. And then, but the troubling thing was how, not, not troubling for me, but to watch how uncomfortable white people were talking about race, how not knowledgeable they were about racism and the fact that it exists and people that I'd known for years, you know, would say, well, I have to talk to my team, their coach. I'm, a, I'm 44 years old, white guy, and I've, I, I've never talked about this. So what should I say? Or people would say, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I didn't know it was so hard. I don't want your sympathy. I, what would make me the most happy is for you to say, I'm going to stand up for this. I'm going to do more. I'm going to investigate my own personal biases. I'm going to make a difference. You know, they kind of got, would get stuck either on some aspect of the story of the, what had happened. Um, I mean, some people said I was ungrateful and I really didn't know what I had to be, what? I'm ungrateful. 
some said, oh, you must have hallucinated in Paris, um, I, that, or that I was bitter, or, um, you know, so it's, it's been across the board, but I think it has at least started a good converse, a conversation. There is a lot of work to be done. What is your take on these young players, Naomi Osaka, Coco Goff, standing up, using their voice, doing everything they can? I think Sloane Stevens is what many, 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 many players. Sasha Vickery we just had on is another example of these players standing up and trying to do something. I think it's fabulous. It makes me proud. And what was interesting, because in, a, in another article talking about Coco and her activism, I, I just referenced the fact that for her entire life, there have been black tennis champions. So she doesn't have to worry about, oh, I'm gonna mess it up for the next guy if I say something. Versus me and my generation, it's all new, a black woman on the tour, I better be on my best behavior because I don't wanna mess it up for the next generation. So for her to have that freedom and to take advantage of that platform is fabulous absolutely fabulous because basically they're saying we're tired of this you know my grandmother Coco said my grandmother was fighting this battle why are we still going through it you love my music you love our culture but we're still getting treated this way and this has got to stop so I think it's it's powerful and and um people are unapologetically black and um if people ask me the question I'm going to tell them what the real deal is where before, you know, I, I just, it was just, you know, you just put it back there in your backpack. It's just, here's another instance that happened. I actually asked this question to Sasha Vickery um, on an unrelated note, but mm -hmm. what statement or like, if you had a chance to just kind of speak to anyone that, you know, both, both sides of the coin, every, every single race. And if you were just to make a statement, what would the statement be about? Would it just be like, you know, like Ben and Jerry, the white supremacy has to stop or what kind of statement would you have? I mean, I think Alice Marble said it really well. And um, something to the effect that, you know, Althea was a tennis player and she just wanted the same opportunity that uh, Alice Marble had to compete. And that, you know, people are people, um, but you know, our come on, our country wasn't founded on that premise, right? Because my family started out as property, and just based on that, from going from property to person, there have been a lot of laws and institutional biases that have kept people down, so they can't. Um, I mean, like I'm in real estate, for instance. So, just as a sidebar, if I compare two families. Maybe you've inherited your grandfather's house, but this family doesn't have a grandfather's house because this family over here, the black family wasn't allowed to get a mortgage, wasn't allowed to live in a certain neighborhood. So they couldn't transfer that wealth to the next generation. So it's around us. Um, everybody doesn't see it. And definitely black people never really talked about it too much. But now when people ask, they're like, wow, you know? So it's, it's, it's a good time in terms of having conversations. I had a colleague and sometimes you get the, well, I wasn't rich. My family had it hard. And this was somebody whose mother worked at the post office. They had several kids, alcoholic dad and um, single mom, basically. 
And so she told me that. And, and, and I says, that's so true. I said, but your mom could live in a town where the black mom that worked beside her couldn't. So when your mom sold that house, she got more money than the black mom. The black mom wasn't probably paid as much as your mom, but she still had to do all the things that your mom did. You know, her insurance rates were higher because she lived in a neighborhood where uh, the crime rate was up because she couldn't live in a better neighborhood like your mom. So I could see her make the total shift like, oh, okay. Even though it was difficult for my family, it was difficult, more difficult for a family of color just because of the color of their skin, right? So that was the thing that, um, you know, everybody's had it hard at some point. But, um, and one of the examples that I've heard uh, people explain, so you, you're, you're a fish and you're struggling, you know, to get down the river, trying to get down the river. And when you're black, it's like you're swimming upstream, going the other direction. You're still trying to make pro progress, but you're going against the current. So you got to work that much harder. You talked, about, you talked about how now it's like a very freeing and if it's a good time. Is it liberating to talk about this freely? It was very cathartic. And there were many other times that I really wanted or situations that I might have dealt with them differently or more vocally or called somebody out on their BS or their bad behavior or their racist behavior. But, you know, I was worried about the term that I use being Kaepernick. You know, I wanted to stay in the tennis industry. I didn't want to be labeled as as a troublemaker um, because that was uh, one of the ways that we could be controlled um, because you didn't want to mess it up for the next one. So now I'm like, you know what? I, I'm only speaking the truth, my truth. Um, those of you haters are going to hate, as they say. But um, I, I just like for it to be educational, you know, um, informational. And I'm not the explainer in truth either. You know, uh, that, that's, that's not my role either. Because some of the questions that I ask um, or that I say is my entire life, I've had to live in two worlds. I've had to live in the greater white world and the African-American community. And then sometimes you straddle both of them. So many white people have had the luxury and the privilege just to live in their world. And so now at 40 or 50 or 60 years of age for people to say to me, oh, I never noticed that. Or I had the privilege of, yeah, you did. Um, so don't, don't come to me all of a sudden expecting me to explain something. One of the things that I tell my athletes is whenever you walk into a room, you should be prepared. You should know something about the people in the room, what the purpose is, and what you're trying to accomplish. So that's one of the lessons in Win for Life training. So when someone comes to me, basically says, well, tell me what to say to the Black people or to my team or tell me about this, it tells me that you're so privileged that you're not gonna take the time to learn. I think everybody is just exhausted. It's exhausting being black, you know? It's exhausting on a daily basis, you know? I, have to th I live in a complex that I think about when it's cool outside and I have a hood, a hoodie on. Oh, I don't, I don't should I put my hood up? Maybe not. That's exhausting, you know? But that's just real. My daughter's in Georgia. She has a short natural like mine. So, 
you know, she gets the boy, same black boy talk as well. You know, put your hands here. If the police come, don't do this, don't do that. It's that part, that stuff is exhausting. You know, we're just tired of it. But, you know, but I'm not the only one. And I think as I shared my story, so many others said, you know, that was my story too. So it's like a license to like breathe. I just want to say that I'm glad that you are feeling comfortable to share your story, especially here with us. I think you know that Irene and I are honored to have you on and talk about all this. But this being Kaepernick sentence that you had in that story really stood out. A lot of things stood out. But uh-huh. um, at the Battle of the Brits over in England, Andy Murray, uh, I think Dan Evans, Jay Clark, they all knelt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I don't think we have an anthem, but, you know, the, the symbol right. was made. Everyone got, on, got down on one knee before their match. Mm-hmm. What do you make mm-hmm. of these tennis players taking a stand like this? Well, you know, I don't so much look at it as tennis players as they're just, they're humans willing to, um, when you're a tennis player, you're independent. So it's good that they are doing that. And I think they're less concerned about their brand because now, um, because it's, it's topical. So let's see what happens in six months or in nine months, but you're, you're in the in crowd right now. I mean, I knew that one of the athletes uh, posted retweeted uh, my article, but then took it down. So that just means, okay, somebody got to them, you know, um, but what can you do? Yeah, there's a fear of backlash of people hating on you, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. wow, what a, that was, that was a lot. I guess my willingness to sort of share my story because I knew that over the years, people have seen me in a lot of different capacities, from being a player to being a tournament director to even when my daughter had a really rare blood disease and she needed a bone marrow trans- transplant. Um, at the US Open one year in the locker room, 100 players, whether they were staff, coaches, players, they came in and this is when you would have to do a blood draw for, uh, to test your bone marrow or to, test your, to see if you were a potential match. So, you know, they see me in that capacity as a mom desperate to help her baby, um, you know, at the Arthur Ashe booth. So it was important for me to share, you know, they've seen me in all those ways. And I, it wasn't like I was a rabble rouser out there on the protest line carrying the flag or anything like that. So it was almost as if, if Leslie, if this is happening to Leslie, wow, you know, so it was, it was that kind of thing. And, and Tennis is a family, so to speak. And uh, I noticed that when we did the Althea Gibson, um, when the statue at the US Open the, for that, and, uh, and I spoke at that dedication. And it was the first time that I saw some of the black players that I played with, I mean, in 20 years or more. And I promise you, we picked up exactly where we left off. And it was really kind of hysterical because we were all up in a suite and the same way we used to kid with one another, we immediately fell into that. We're also very bossy. So, you know, go get this, get that. I need this, you know, but that was just how we would interact with one another. And people just kind of watched how we kind of had a, a shorthand. So that's also, you know, every, every experience I had in tennis was not horrible, but that was, that's just one of the additional things that you carry along, you know, the, that negativity that just comes with, you know, that's the exhausting part of being black. 
<laughs> so you personally knew um, Althea Gibson as well. I did. I did. The, f- the first time I met her, well, I think I met her as a kid and I thought, wow, she's okay. She's giant. Um, on our TV or console TV in my house growing up, there was a picture. I still have that picture. There was an eight by 10 picture of Althea autographed to my mother. Who grows up with a picture of Althea Gibson on their wall? Most black people have Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy, Jesus. I had Althea Gibson. Um, And then when I was a rookie pro, um, she had me, well, um, a sportsman's club in Boston, which is an indoor black tennis facility, had me, Zena, Kim Sands, and Andrea Buchanan come up and train with Althea. We hit for an hour. Then she said, all right, ladies, sit down. What are your goals? So I was so proud. And I said, um, um, I want to be good enough to play. I want to, I want to uh, be good enough to play in the main draw of WTA events. Because at that time I was in the quality. So I was like, quality suck. <laughs> I, want to, I want to be in the main draw. So if I'm in the main draw, then I've arrived. And so she, you know, so I don't know. I guess I thought I was going to get a pat on the back. She looked at me and she was like, with your wingspan, and she stuck her arms out, um, you need to be thinking about winning WTA tournaments. And that one sentence changed my life because first of all, I was like, okay, so this is a two-time Wimbledon and US Open champion telling me this, she knows something. And, oh, I have to change everything. I have to go for the fences. I have to uh, work harder. I have to, I have to. And, and within a year or so, I was. You did, though. You won the 81 Detroit WTA title. Yeah, I did. I did. And what specifically yeah. did you change? I mean, was it like night and day kind of thing? Or was it more just like mentally you were just geared to win? It was the mindset that I could be that good, that I could be good enough to win tournaments and not just settle for showing up, but thinking that you could win. So then that just made me push harder in terms of training. And mind you now, a couple things. I didn't play in junior tournaments. I never had a junior ranking. I never had a national ranking. I didn't even have a local ranking. So when I was in college playing at USC, I played at the bottom of the ladder, played number six. I did not play doubles because I did not come to the net at that time. And um, so by the time I got to the pros, when I graduated, I'd started coming to the net. And so my game was still accelerating where many of my peers had already peaked, you know? So I kept getting better. So it was the, it was the right combination of Althea playing with a big old Prince bracket. So I'm like, okay, you gotta be able to volley with that thing and um, working hard. But it was the, the mindset. It was like the permission to believe I could do it because when you look at, no ranking, um, bottom of a college ladder. Who the hell's gonna think they can win a WTA tournament? You know, just goes to show what you know. What um, just one comment like that can really affect someone, can really change someone's life, yeah. which it clearly yeah. did. Yeah, you can win and, for and life. That's really why I do the win win for life because either some of the training or one lesson that they learn will change their life. And, the, and so that's that's really because I know that happened to me. I think this that's is awesome. a note we can definitely end on. A win yes. for life note. So yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Leslie. This was You're awesome. You're quite welcome. Okay. I'm so glad that you were able to 
take some time today and shed some light on all things. And yes. uh, we're just so happy that we got to hear your story today. So and, yeah, and, and thanks for being a, a Win for Life protege. You're, you're doing me proud. <laughs> love it, love it. You're you, were, proud. you were a great professor. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, Ashley. All right. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as Tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and Tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.